You're listening to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem, your bi-weekly dose of true crime history in a small rural community of Wisconsin. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back and he sounds really excited. I am excited. He is excited. I this am w- excited. The thing is, it's just like I have to skim because these notes are way too long mm-hmm. and they don't need to be this long. So I'm going to be skimming at parts. No, this this is a great story. All right, so where were, where are we headed today? Are we still in Green Bay or are we moving now? We are in Sheboygan. Sheboygan, okay. Yeah. I actually think Gavin told me something about this story, but I can't remember at all what it was. Well, I will tell you what I told you <laughs> because I I I'm pretty sure I told everybody last time. Maybe I didn't. Maybe this was after off the air. We're doing this story because it has a lot of parallels with our previous story. And last time we talked about Harry Hibbard, and which was the first time uh, I had to put out the listener warning. Again, not that I should have to do that on a podcast <laughs> about murder. Um, I felt it was a little more disturbing than usual. And long story short, it was about uh, an entire family who was killed together. I guess. I mean, yes. all at the same time. And Wait, so, it, and so, not to not to like immediately like give it away, but but this is going to be a similar story. story. Um, not the same family, though. Not the same family. Yeah, in completely different place. So yes, not the same. Fa- that would be weird. Yeah, yeah. It? Like if the the son of the son that killed the last family just killed his family or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about the Dean family in Sheboygan, and we're specifically concerned with Douglas Dean. I'm just going to call him Doug. In the 1960s, he's a teenager, and he has a girlfriend named Debbie. One day, Debbie, who is 16, is over at the Dean residence, and... We don't know. There's there's conflicting stories. What we know, what ends up happening, is at some point... She has the family's twenty-two rifle. She goes into her boyfriend, Doug Dean's, bedroom and kills herself. All right? Okay. The police uh, later claim that she was pregnant. The Dean family said that they didn't know anything about that. So there's, there's some dispute here about how this came about. Was it because she was despondent over being pregnant? How did she get a hold of the family's gun? You know, there's some questions here. None of this is really important for today's story. This is just sort of a prelude to let you know that this is hanging over the Dean family. Okay. 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 So this, the, the girlfriend killing herself. That is not the no, story. That isn't the story. Okay. That is not the story. So no disrespect to Debbie. Um, she is not the focus of this story. This is just to let you know. Of a situation that's leading up to, to the, what's going on here. So uh, this happens when? Uh, this was in the 60s. In late, now, late 60s, yeah. And then where are we going? Like, is this years later? Or not, not even years, years later. later like, like a year later. Okay, okay. Then in, in May of 1970, the family uh, ends up losing the father... Warren Dean ends up passing out, not passing out, passing away. <laughs> Maybe he passed out too. Um, uh, he passed passed away, and he was only 50 years old, so relatively young. Mm-hmm. So the family lost the father. Um, the mother didn't drive, so 
her son, Doug, is now driving her around, getting her to work and stuff. Doug apparently has not a very good relationship with his mother, even though, you know, he's driving her around. They argue a lot. She apparently is threatened to have him committed for his behavior. I don't know how bad this, his behavior is. He's telling people he hates his mom. Uh, he needed money. He had no sources of income. And that he would tell his mom that she should turn over her social security checks to him. Very, like, not a happy mother-son relationship here. All right. Doug graduates uh, from Sheboygan High School in June 1970, so about a month after his father dies. Afterwards, he works occasionally as a drummer in a local band, um, but has no other job. So I don't know how much money being a drummer. local drummer gets you, but probably not a lot. That fall, he enrolls in Lakeshore Technical Institute, um, but he drops out of school a few months later. While at Lakeshore, he dated a girl named Mary Ann Steer. Dean told her, Doug Dean told her, that he could inherit $40,000 from his mother if he could make her death look like an accident. Wow. Specifically, he said, a really good idea is if I built a shooting range in the basement, and then I practice, and then one day when my mother walks into the basement, I could shoot her and just say that my hand slipped, and I missed the target. Then it would look like an accident. That wouldn't really work, would it? Probably not. No, I don't think so. <clears throat> he said, even if I was caught, it wouldn't look like murder. Probably the most I would get is 10 years. Okay, Great conversation <laughs> yeah, here. I'm kind of wondering what the girlfriend's uh, response to all this is at this point. The girlfriend breaks up with him. <laughs> Immediately. <laughs> partially because of that, but partially because he apparently has developed a really bad LSD habit. <laughs> she doesn't like that very much. Spring of 1971, he's back out of, dropped out of college. He's living at home. He's 19 years old, lives with his mother who he doesn't get along with. He's got a sister and a brother, but they're both out of the house. In mid-July 1971, Doug returns to Sheboygan after a visit with Ann Rammer in Madison and said that he was going to ask his mother one more time for Social Security money. <laughs> he had also been getting into fights now with Ann and her mother concerning money for Ann's college expenses. So I don't know why he's involved in that conversation, but he is. He has a close relationship with the Rammer family. Mrs. Rammer apparently had paid his tuition to Lakeshore for the brief time he was there. And he even had keys to their house and their family car. Sometimes they refer to Ann Rammer as one of his girlfriends. I'm not entirely sure if that's true or if he's just a family friend Fine. and she just happens to be female. Because mm -hmm. there's no real indication that they're like romantic or anything. I don't know. But either way, he's also really close to this other family. Which... Coincidentally, their father had also recently passed away. So they're, you know, single mother raising kids. Mm -hmm. And apparently there's an estate worth $100,000 for this family that's in a trust fund that's supposed to come out when the kids reach age 30. Okay. Okay. It's, it's a lot of stuff going on here. I know. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to get... To the stuff. Okay. Now we're going to get to the stuff. 
12.15 p.m. early afternoon on July 19, 1971. The pastor of St. George's Church found Doug sitting on the back stairs of the church located in the town of Wilson, which is six miles from Sheboygan. Dean was unresponsive and had a blank expression on his face. The pastor called the sheriff's department for assistance and a deputy sheriff responded and went to the church where he found Dean sitting on the rear steps with his head down, having difficulty breathing. An ambulance was called. He was taken to the hospital. When asked if he had had an accident, he shook his head. He was admitted to the hospital. His identity was determined from his wallet, and attempts were made to contact his mother, but no response was received. The hospital then called his sister. She was informed that Dean was in the hospital, uh, and they couldn't contact their mother. So she drove over to the mother's house, and she arrived and entered through an unlocked front door. She found her mother's body lying in her bed and noticed a large amount of blood on and around her mother's head and pillow. The police were summoned, uh, and they found two gunshot wounds on the right side of the mother's face. Okay. So she's quite dead. The door to Dean's bedroom across the hall was open. There were two beds in the room, neither of which appeared to have been slept in. On one of the beds, the officer saw an empty cardboard box of twenty-two caliber rifle shells or whatever. After discovering her mother's body, Dean's sister contacted the family attorney, told him what was up, and sent him to go see Dean in the hospital. The reason that she sent the attorney to the hospital was apparently after the suicide of Dean's girlfriend a year or two ago, he was absolutely horribly interrogated by the police and the press and everyone else. Not surprisingly, really. And so she wanted to make sure an attorney got there as soon as possible because when the mother was, you know, announced dead, they were going to they come. were going to have a bad situation. Mm-hmm. I don't think she suspected her brother at this point, but just to make sure that there was somebody there to kind of handle the situation. It's kind of surprising that she wouldn't suspect her brother because, I mean, she must have been aware of their terrible relationship. And maybe she did. Not sure. In the hospital, Dean wouldn't wouldn't talk to the doctors, but they were able to determine his medical history from their records, and they did a blood test on him and find that he was recovering from a large dose of LSD. <laughs> uh, apparently, you can find it a blood test. <laughs> During the course of the investigation, police found that Dean was a close friend of Ann Rammer and the Rammer family, who lived a block away from the Dean residence. Police tried to contact Mrs. Rammer, and they could not get a hold of her. So they contacted some relatives, and they went, the police contacted some relatives and went to the house. And when they entered the house, they looked up the stairs, and the inspector saw the body of a small boy lying on the landing covered in blood. The boy was Paul Rammer, who was shot through the right eye and through the middle of the front of his neck. Um, the officer then went to the first floor bedroom where he found the body of Mrs. Rammer lying in bed. She had been shot in the head and the neck. The inspector went upstairs and discovered the body of Thomas Rammer, age 10, lying in the hall. 
He had multiple gunshot wounds to his right arm, right chest, neck, and face. The police then entered another bedroom on the second floor and found the body of John Rammer, age 16, who had been shot in the left arm, neck, and head. Empty cartridge cases um, were found near the bodies, along with a 22 caliber rifle, and the cartridges matched to the rifle, and the rifle traced back to having been purchased by Doug Dean. Wow. At this point, he is clearly the main suspect. suspect. Now, the family that we, we just talked about, what did you say their name was? Rammer. The Rammers? Yeah. Were they the ones with the trust? Yes. Okay. So Dean has now apparently killed his mother as well as the entire family that he's friends with, other than other than Anne, the girl that he may or may not have been dating. dating. Okay. She, she did not die. Uh, or get shot. She wasn't there. Everyone else in the house. He was charged with five counts of first-degree murder, placed under arrest. Jury selection uh, started out with 200 prospective jurors before they finally got it down to the 12 they needed. Family attorney refused to represent Dean at trial, so he had to get his own attorney. <laughs> Some interesting things. The state crime lab did an analysis of his clothes that he entered the hospital with, and they couldn't find any blood stains on his clothes anywhere. On his shoes, they did find a little bit of blood, but the total amount was less than the size of a pinhead. I And I guess, granted, I mean, he's using a rifle, so it's not like he's, like, right up next to them necessarily. You would figure... But nothing, no, no obvious signs that he was involved in violence. Mm-hmm. An inmate in the county jail testified that uh, he had talked to Dean while Dean was awaiting trial, and he said, and the, and the inmate said... Dean said something about some kid who was crying, and he shot him once. And he wouldn't have shot him three or four times if he would have just stopped crying. (laughs) He also testified that Dean said that he was going from one house to another and then back again, or something like that. Which, I don't know why he would do that. After the state rested their case, which, you know, I'm not going to go into what they said in detail, because it's pretty clear what what happened here. here. (laughs) Dean presented a testimony to establish that at the time that he was picked up in the church... He was stupefied, he was dazed, he was under the influence of of LSD, Uh, he was completely disoriented, incoherent, irrational, and starry-eyed. He could not have possibly have known what was going on that day. He denied, of course, being involved in any of the violence. A doctor said that sometimes when you take LSD, it could last for five hours, but other times it could last up to 10 to 12 hours, depending on the dose. Determining how long he had been like that was hard to say. At the time he was admitted to the hospital, Dean had in his jacket pocket six pieces of gumdrops, and they had LSD in them. Uh, One piece of candy contained 132 micrograms of that drug. I have no clue if that's a lot or what that is. But he he had a box of gumdrops that were laced with LSD. Now here, here's the brilliant defense. Dean says that he was recently in Madison visiting Ann Rammer, which he was. And while there, he visited the student union to read a newspaper. A stranger came up to him and asked to see the newspaper. He gave the stranger the newspaper, because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And the stranger was thankful and gave him a box of gumdrops. (laughs) The stranger didn't say anything about it, and Dean didn't know 
that there was LSD in the gumdrops. Uh, he then went back home to Sheboygan, and the next day he's laying in bed reading a book about chess when he starts eating the gumdrops. <laughs> he says, After a while, my thoughts started getting like I was playing chess with somebody in real life. I got all mixed up. I felt tingly. My vision became impaired. Things seemed to move and to vibrate. The colors were not normal. He remembered being somewhere warm and dry and was walking between two white lines, which seemed to stretch into an into infinity. And the next he remembered, he was talking to a friendly man and a little monster, which turned out to be the pastor's dog. <laughs> <laughs> Dean swore that he had never used hallucinogenic drugs before. He said, I, I do smoke marijuana. That I do. Do not use LSD. But he had the girlfriend that broke up <clears throat> with him because of his LSD issue, right? Yes. Okay. He said he often simulated the use of LSD <laughs> with other people, but he had never actually taken them. He said sometimes he would purchase LSD tablets, split them in half, and then give half to a friend, and then the other half he would put in his mouth for a second and then spit it out when the friend wasn't looking. <laughs> he would tell people things to shock them. He said one time he went to a female friend's apartment in the middle of the night, walked in, and claimed he was on LSD and warned her that he didn't know what he could do because you might become violent when you're on LSD. He said he wouldn't actually do anything. He just wanted to scare her and get some kind of reaction out of her. But he told her that he was a violent person and that she better be careful because he had a girlfriend two years ago who killed herself in his bedroom. And he said, but I just said that to, I just said that to shock my friend. This is really weird. <laughs> this is a really weird story. This this is like I'm really summing this up. Like this is his whole defense Thanks. is that he didn't know that the candy was drugged. He had never taken drugs even though many people said that he did. <laughs> and he would say outrageous things to people just to shock them. And this is how he explains away the story about like the target practice in the basement. Okay, I don't personally believe this drug story. I find this very unbelievable. But honestly, though, I mean, it's not a terrible defense. It's not a terrible defense, defense but, because... but who's giving away? <laughs> it's weird. It could happen. It could happen. And then, and then, like, the whole, like, all the things about him talking about killing his mom is like, oh, that's just me trying to shock people, like, Dude, uh, <laughs> I tell you something. I've got a really dark sense of humor, and and I say some inappropriate things sometimes. But I have never in my life joked about killing my friends and family. That is not. There's nothing okay about that. <laughs> so, but I think I think that to say that there isn't somebody out there that wouldn't say that. Yeah. Is it's, probably, it's certainly possible. Yeah, I mean. It's certainly possible, but it doesn't look good to say that I jokingly told my <laughs> girlfriend I was going to shoot my mom, and then later your mom is shot, like months later. Mm -hmm. Passing that off as a joke, I don't think really even makes you look less guilty. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's a heck of a coincidence. 
So that's uh, like that's basically his defense. Like there's he goes into other ways of explaining away all the terrible things that he said and whatever else. At the conclusion of the of the trial, three possible verdicts were submitted to the jury. He could either be found guilty of first degree murder, guilty of second degree murder, or not guilty. Would you care to guess what came back? I'm going to say because I'm I'm kind of dumb, but I'm going to guess that first degree is worse than second degree. It is. Correct, it is. Right? Yes. So I'm going to say it's first first degree murder because this sounds pretty like brutal. And you are correct. The jury returned guilty verdicts on all five counts of first degree murder. Okay, and that's how many people it was. So it was five his, people. It yeah. was his mom, and then four people from that other family. Correct. Correct. Yeah. He was he was convicted. He was sentenced to five consecutive terms, five consecutive life terms in the Wisconsin State Prison, which is a very long time. Yeah. Which is a very, very long time. The judge said, You are appearing here today as a sane person who has been convicted of intentionally killing your mother while she was asleep in her bed by shooting her in the head at close range, by intentionally killing your girlfriend's mother while she too apparently was asleep in bed, and then killing her three sons, two of whom at least were also in their beds, and one while trying to flee. You shot all the victims in their heads, each being shot fatally, causing almost instant death for each one of them. There is absolutely nothing, as the district attorney has stated, to mitigate your acts, whether or not you had consumed any drugs before the killings. Under the law, you must be penalized for each intentional killing. The penalty provided for each crime of first-degree murder is life imprisonment. I am satisfied that you are a dangerous person. Society must be protected from you for as long as the law permits. That's that's his little speech he gets for why he's getting five consecutive life terms. And you, you, I think you talked about this in a previous podcast. So remind, if you do five consecutive, that's... You're doing them all at one time? No, you're doing them back to back. Well, all at the same time as concurrent. Concurrent, okay. Yeah. So this this guy's never getting out of jail. Is this guy is never getting out of jail. jail? And there's no chance. Yeah, they do file an appeal, and this is this appeal is kind of brilliant. I mean, there's no way this guy's getting out, right? Mm-hmm. But this argument is pretty great. Okay. Great in a humorous sense or great in like, no, this is just really clever? I guess both. Yeah, I mean, okay. it's, it's very clever. It's it's logically a really good argument, but it's not an argument that's going to work. Okay. Okay. So he appeals. He gets his attorney and he gets some psychologists and everything else to kind of back this up. And the argument is that he shouldn't get the five consecutive life terms because this this puts him in a situation where he can never get parole. Mm-hmm. He should he should get a sentence where he's capable of parole and the reason is people who have gone to prison for murder and then are later released don't commit murder. <laughs> like okay. Like statistically that doesn't happen. Therefore, he is not a risk to the community because letting him out isn't going to result in any additional murders. 
logically, that's true. I mean, if statistically that's right, he's onto a valid point. I don't know that that's really an argument, though, to <laughs> not... Yeah, I don't know that it's a great argument because and the and the judge the judge says in response kind of exactly what you would expect the judge to say that like regardless of whether or not that's true, it doesn't change the fact that you killed five people. people yeah. And like a punishment should kind of represent that. It's your punishment isn't necessarily saying like Oh, you're probably not going to do It's like, we're not going to give you probation for murder because you're probably not going to do it again. Yeah, yeah. Like, yes, that's that's why people get probation because they're not seen as like likely to re- re-offend. Murder's kind of an exception to that. It's mm. a clever, clever argument, but no. <laughs> no. So so they, they appeal this. What does that mean? So does he just basically goes to the judge and basically reads that statement. The judge is like, no. Yeah, it went back. Is that, is that it how went that back works? to the same judge who convicted him. It was basically like they immediately appealed, um, trying to be like, "We want you to reevaluate your sentence here. Like this is not, this is not an okay sentence." And of course, like they, they have to know there's no way that this is getting dropped significantly, but it makes a big difference between five consecutive life terms and five concurrent right, life terms. Right. That's that's what they're going for. Because that's it sounds really like if you take it literally, it sounds really stupid. Because a life term's a life term, right? The difference being is if you've got five consecutive life terms and you get pardoned or whatever on one of them, you still got four more to <laughs> go through. So yeah. It's like, oh, you still got four more lives, lives in prison. Whereas concurrent, if you if you get that reduced, like you are eligible for parole that much sooner. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's like, oh, I'm eligible for parole in this first one, but the second one is just kicked in. Mm-hmm. If they're all at the same time, the parole kicks in sooner. At the same time, yeah, but yeah, like I said, it sounds dumb, like when you read it literally, because life in prison should be life in prison. But there's always there's always the parole option right to get around you know like if you th- if you give somebody life in prison without possibility of parole then you run into possibly like oh that's cruel and unusual but you know and I, we're not going to go even go down that path <laughs> i'm not going to argue that one way or the other giving them that possibility of parole kind of makes it seem less bad mm-hmm. but then again you killed five people i don't think anyone's really concerned <laughs> if you're ever getting out He's in prison for a while, and then at age 33, so again, he was 19 at this time, at the time of the murders. At age 33, so you know, he's letting a decade go by, he's growing up, maybe a little less impulsive. He petitioned the governor uh, to have his sentence changed from five consecutive life sentences to five concurrent sentences. You know, again, this is like the thing. He knows he's not going to get him to toss the thing entirely. Mm-hmm. At age 33, he still maintained that he had no memory of the murders. He's he's basically declaring innocence. Now, granted, at age 30, this is still the 1980s, so this is decades ago. Mm-hmm. He, he may have changed that since then. I don't know. But at least for the first 10 years, he's still claiming he does no idea. At his hearing, he got 25 people to testify on his behalf, including a priest, a college professor, his own brother... A psychology professor from Oregon who said that 
Doug was very intelligent. He was a very decent and very creative person. He got he got a number of people to say, you know, he'd, he'd adjusted very well to prison and he was a model prisoner, great guy. Then uh, on the other side, the Rammer family uh, had a number of people who came and testified. And not surprisingly, they had a very opposite, <laughs> opposite view. Barb Rammer of Sheboygan Falls who was a niece of Naomi Rammer, the mother or a cousin to the kids. She testified that she believed that the murders were planned in advance, possibly months in advance, and she didn't care how smart or creative or whatever else he was. Like, that doesn't make it okay to kill people. Mm -hmm. Other family members had very similar thoughts. It did not work. <laughs> His prison sentence did not get reduced. And so far as I know, Doug Dean is still in prison to this day. He's now been in prison for 50 years. And we don't have a story. We don't know anything about, so the, was it Ann Rammer? That the, was his, the, his alleged girlfriend. Yeah, that was never, nothing ever happened to her, but we don't know anything about. I well, mean, she was in Madison at the time of the murders, so she was definitely like not involved, if that's what you're saying. No, I was just curious, like, whatever happened to her, because I'm, I assume she could still be alive? She could still be alive. alive. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of yeah creepy. It is, it is, it is. And, again, I said this on the other podcast we recorded, like, that's why I try to have, like, the 50-year rule. And unfortunately, in this case, even though I'm using the 50-year rule, they were so young that this it's, this is still kind of... There there's probably still plenty of people out there that are, this is pretty fresh, too, I right, imagine. Right. So, yeah, maybe I should have put a listener warning on this one as well. I don't, I don't know what happened to Anne. It's certainly very possible she's still alive, and I, and I can't even imagine that. You lose your your mother, your your, your entire all, family, all your all your yeah. all your siblings, and her dad was already dead. He was, right? he was yeah, yeah he, he, had, he was dead naturally. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and then like one of her closest friends, possibly boyfriend, like is this guy now. I can't imagine in that situation. So um, normally, normally, like I would try to not include like people's names in that in that case. So I apologize to her if she is still around. It was kind of unavoidable um, for the story to not mention her. And it's really interesting to me because, so it sounds like everything this guy did, he did this because of money. He was trying to get a hold of that's that the, trust. That's the implication, the, yeah. And and that's just weird to me because it's it's like he went about it in a terrible way because obviously even if... Okay, so he kills everybody. Mm -hmm. This other family has this trust. I mean, what is that going to do for him? And the fact that he left the, the daughter lived, well, now all that trust is going to go all into that daughter. Yeah. Unless they were in a relationship and that was the whole plan. Yeah. It's, it, it's just a really weird dynamic of what's going on here. None of it makes sense to me. The prosecution claims that he wasn't on LSD at the time, that he took the LSD shortly before he showed up at the church to kind of cover his tracks. So he should have been fully coherent through the whole thing. Now, it doesn't make sense. I don't know 
the I guess the killing the mom thing, you know, I guess he'll inherit whatever there, maybe, possibly. I don't know. The whole other family makes no sense. And and either, unless, either way, unless the girl was in cahoots with right. Him. I mean right. which but but, I, but either way, like this is a terrible way to get money. This, yeah, like I, you're not thinking this through at all. And the dude was not was not smart about this. The the Rammer house, the, the twenty two rifle is in the house. And it traces back to him as the person who purchased it. Now, I'm not trying to tell somebody how to do this. <laughs> but using but at the gu- very, very least, do not leave the murder weapon with your name on it <laughs> at the murder scene. Like, yeah. That is a really, like, at least throw it somewhere so it takes them an extra day or two to trace it back to you. Like, don't tell them that you did it. I don't know, like, what was going on here, like, how he thought this would get him the money or or what, but this was, if it, I don't know if that it was planned in advance, clearly based on things he was saying, these were kind of thoughts that he yeah, had. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But this doesn't come across to me as a very well-planned A part event. of me almost thinks, like, this is something that he had thought about for a long, long time, mm. and I don't know, I would assume that... The when they when they were charging him, they wanted they wanted to give the perception that he wasn't on drugs when mm-hmm. he committed the murders because then they could take out that whole element of like temporary insanity or sure. whatever you could probably defend against that. So they wanted it to be thought of that he was clean, but I almost feel like he wasn't. Yeah, you know, like because just the way it was carried out, it was carried out so sloppily. So. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know one way or the other, but I I agree with the judge on the sentencing. Like, I mean, even if he was like, that's not an excuse. No, no, not at all. It's not an excuse, but it it does almost seem like. I mean, either this guy just wasn't very, very, very smart about this, or he was on something when he was doing it because he wasn't yeah. making any effort to be intelligent about it. Right. Which I don't know. Maybe we've done enough podcasts where I guess maybe. Are murderers that intelligent about what it is? But this doesn't seem like a thing of passion or like emotion at all. This seems like he he had a calculated mission here. I agree. You know, which tends to make me think that you're going to think about it a little bit before you do it. I agree. Yeah. Like it it comes across as this is the day that he snapped, except for the fact that it's to take a little time. Like, if he snapped and he, and he killed his mom, that's one thing. So then he'd have to carry it through. And, and maybe... I, I don't... I mean, I guess I I can't yeah. know that mindset, but it's... I guess it could have been... a Killing his mom could have been a catalyst. Yeah. And then he just made the decision to go and do the other murders after. Yeah. He's like, well, I killed her. I might as well go kill them now. I don't know. Or something. I... But it, this is just a weird story in general. Yeah, it's a weird story. Like, like I said, we're, we're pairing it with the other one because it's, you know, it's a it's a mass murder of a family, very similar to the other story. You know, obviously there's major differences as well, but you know, there's that, and and it just jumps out at me, despite the fact that like I 
read a lot of crime and I've been reading a lot of crime for quite a long time. It still, it still shocks me that these things were going on in Sheboygan and Green Bay. Not that there's anything special, like they, they wouldn't happen there, that these don't seem to be known stories. Mm-hmm. You would think that this would be a timeless story right? in both places because something like this doesn't happen very yeah. often. Right. And-, and I don't live in Green Bay or Sheboygan, so maybe they are more so there. Just in general, uh, not that this is a good thing because it's definitely not, but we as a society, you know, kind of glorify murderers to some mm-hmm. extent. And when you've killed five people, you kind of become like a legend in some way. And well, that doesn't seem to have happened here, uh, which is good. It shouldn't. But like normally that's like that name's just going to be around forever. forever. But yeah, like what do they call once you're like a serial killer? How many, do you know how many murders that is? Because there is a number that they consider it. Yeah. And it's extremely low. It's very low. It's, yeah. I think, I think normally the definition can start as low as three, but the difference is, is, is it can't be like at one. One, yeah, yeah. Like this is kind of one murder because you did them all at one time. Right. If you did them over like a month or something, it changes dramatically. So. Right. Wow. So that that's an interesting one, man. Yeah. Um. How did you stumble upon that? I, I always like to hear, how did this one come in onto your radar? It came out of the last one. So the last one, the Harry Hibbard one, I had never heard of. Came upon that because there's actually a book called Harry, which I found just by searching true crime, Wisconsin, and it came up. And then in the book, like it, like it doesn't go into any of this in the book. It kind of mentions it as a point of, the, the the book uses the Harry Hibbert case as sort of like a jumping off point to discuss the idea of, I think they call it teenage mass murder. I'm not sure what the exact term they use is. It's not as current, as new as people think it is. It's been around for, yeah, been, been happening for a while. Right. In, in the public consciousness, teenage mass murder started with Columbine. That is not true. That, not to say that wasn't an absolutely horrible event, because it was. That really set a new bar of how awful things could be. Teenagers, and particularly teenage boys, having these days where they're just going to go nuts, like, that's not new. That's That's been around. This guy, not playing violent video games. Not listening to heavy metal music, <laughs> music. you know, these, like these weren't uh, these were not options for him. This stuff happens now, and you're probably not at all qualified to answer this question. But it, do you think that the big change has been that that now teenage massacres are people going in and, and shooting up schools as opposed to like in our two scenarios, it's just killing off the family. Mm-hmm. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Like, like, because I, I, these are the same, yeah, stories in a way. Yeah, but to me, a kid killing his entire family and a kid that goes into a school and shoots up a whole, whole school, which one creates more buzz, newsworthy buzz? Right, it's right. going to be the shooting up the of the school. Right, and and yeah, I think I think there's definitely something to that. Have you seen? Have you seen like sixties 
school shooting no. type stories. No. So so that's probably where that big pivot is. Yeah. I mean, why that- I think there's I think there's two parts and I'm just for people listening like I'm just kind of rambling and throwing <laughs> this out there like this is not this is not like a well-researched educated opinion here. I would say I would think it's two things. One, there is that shift from your immediate family, your surroundings to more or less random groups of people, people you may not even know who they are. Mm. So there is that, which is certainly, I don't even want to say it's worse. I mean, I don't know what makes it, one worse. But. It's it's more, but it's more uh, newsworthy. Right. It, it, it's It's more alarming by default in our brains, even though they're both terrible. For some reason, yeah. in our brains, a school shooting is way more horrible right. than a kid killing his entire family. Right. But the second thing I want to say to that is I think this is one of those things where you can also really put it on the media. And, I, and, I, and I'm not somebody who likes to blame the media. <laughs> but in this case, I'm going to to some degree because I think from the 90s forward, you had your 24-hour news channels you had your rise of your internet, and I think this changed the way things happened. One, it might have been more influential on people because, okay, this kid kills his family in Sheboygan. If you didn't live in Sheboygan or Northeast Wisconsin, you didn't you hear about probably it. You probably didn't know, yep. And now, if he had done this anywhere in the country, it would have been a, a big News story. story. Right. So I think that changed it to some degree. But I also think, I think it disproportionately makes us think that this is becoming more common. So I recently, for my day job, I recently went through Alice training, active shooter training. And, you know, and they were saying to us, you know, everybody knows like the big shootings, you know, Columbine. Sandy Hook, the Las Vegas thing, and so Parkland. These are the things that like stand out to you. So you know they're out there. You know they happen. But here's the thing. like Those things are headlines. Those things have constantly like sucked up the attention because they are so headline grabbing. But if you step back from that and you do the math, and nobody likes to do the math. The math is the not fun part. But if you do the math, homicide and specifically gun homicide, but homicide in general, has not gone up. Mm-hmm. It's Murder rates are not increasing, and your odds of getting killed in a school shooting or attending a concert or whatever else are really, really low. It's probably not going to happen because these events just stick in our minds. We think this is going on. All the time. All the time. Yeah. You actually like look at the stats... And and it and it doesn't it doesn't radically shift the gun violence rates, which believe me, I if you hear this, you think like, well, you're full of shit. Look it up. <laughs> like the FBI sends out their annual report on on you know violence and and gun death and and other crime statistics. You can see the numbers yourself. <laughs> um, it's. It it started going up in the seventies. It peaked in like the late eighties, early nineties. The gun death was actually at its worst 
before Columbine ever happened. So now, have you looked into it enough to see, is the trajectory on the way down, or is it just kind of staying? It went back down after the early 90s, and now I think it's kind of been flat. It's just been what it is for a considerable amount of time. So there you go. Social media does not kill. (laughs) Well, yeah. I I mean, it doesn't, well, it doesn't increase death. (laughs) Right. (laughs) At least. But that's, that's, that was my little soapbox moment there. But that's, I just wanted to say that's like, these things stand out in our minds. They're exceedingly rare. The things, things aren't as common as they seem. We just all know about them now. And I so. think it's also important, and you can tell me if you disagree with us. We kind of talked at at a certain point about how it's kind of shifted where where kids are no longer killing their families but going and shooting up <laughs> sure. entire schools. Yeah. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's just that now they're doing both because I'm sure stories like this are still out there and still happening today. Yeah. But just like back in the '60s, we didn't really hear about it mm-hmm. unless unless you were in the neighborhood or unless it's a high profile person that everybody knows, you're not going to hear about an entire family getting killed by a kid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's not that, that they've stopped killing their families and gone to killing schools. It's just that they were, this is still happening. It's just not, we still don't get the press that you get when somebody goes and shoots up a school. Would you agree with that? I, I, yeah, I guess I would agree with that. Okay. I just want. I to think make... they'd both get pressed, but yes, absolutely. I mean, there's. They and, and I don't and I don't mean in any way like try to diminish the tragedy of school shootings. Like it's not not my intent. I'm just saying like they're exceedingly rare, but absolutely, they're going to get the media headlines because right. what's more terrifying than a building full of children who can't get out of that building? Exactly. Like, and so... what's more scary to a parent, right. To know that they they could be sending their kid to school to be you know to be in a gunfight, right? You know, right. that's that's terrifying, right? And so that I mean that just is much more alerting and much more alarming to everybody. So it just gets more pre- press coverage. You're right. Maybe if this happened in Milwaukee tomorrow, mm-hmm. we'd probably see it in the news for one day. And then, yeah. and then, then, then it would be gone. It would be forgotten. It's just, it's the difference between. And I just don't want to like people to think that we're saying that this doesn't happen anymore. Oh, because yeah. they're shooting up schools. No, instead. I wouldn't. No, it's, I certainly wasn't saying that it doesn't happen. Just it just doesn't get. It still doesn't get the press coverage that the school shootings. Yeah, get, yeah. So, so, anyways, we've wow. So today we have gone way off the rails on all of our podcasts. Yeah. So how about so that? this one is really long. So we apologize. To I, everybody let, I for bet that. it's really long. As usual, we thank everybody for tuning into this po- this podcast. If you do have any questions, comments, concerns, anything about what you heard today, you can send us an email at milwaukeemafia at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. And we will be back. Dude, does it look like we'll be back in two weeks with another new episode? Or We or? can be. Okay. Yeah. So he's still got the stories coming, so it's going to probably be new for a while. Again, we thank everybody for tuning in. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in to Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. Join us in two weeks for another exciting episode of Murder and Mayhem.